For those I haven't met this morning, my name is Jay Cosgrove. I'm one of the pastors here at Solar City, and it is always such an honor to come to worship uh, here, but also to open the word and, um, and just see what the Lord might speak to us together. So today we're going to be proceeding through our Advent series, The Word Made Flesh, and we've really been walking through just beautiful truths week in and week out of Christ and his coming and how we relate to him because of that. And today, we're going to wrap that up with that final stanza. And I'm going to read it just one more time. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. It's beautiful. And it's beautiful specifically because since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, right, a chasm has existed between God and mankind. We have on one side an infinitely and eternally holy and just God who could not commune unaided or unmediated with sinful people who had broken and severed his law. That, that, That relationship had been severed between God and man. Where there once was communion and companionship with God, there now was enmity and strife. There was a price to be paid, right? There was a a debt to be settled, justice to be executed, and a relationship to be mended. We needed a worthy sacrifice. A worthy sacrifice. We needed a savior, a mediator. And today we're going to be looking specifically at how Christ, in his coming, and now in his ascended spot at the right hand of the Father, fulfills this supremely crucial role of mediator between us, that's, that's mankind, and God. And he does this in three offices that we see kind of spelled out behind me here in his office as perfect priest, prophet, priest, and king. And when we look throughout the Old Testament, we see how God, God's people specifically, have relied on human mediators. So let me just define that word a little bit. Um, Think about a mediator in the case of maybe um, like a lawsuit, where before something goes to a lawsuit, you're going to have someone in between that's trying to get the two parties together so this doesn't go to court. Or a marriage is a good example of that too. If there's, if there's strife, there's something between them. A mediator steps in between, tries to get them to communicate well together, right? Well, we see this play out in the Old Testament, and we see them in offices of prophet, priests, kings, and judges, Right? They were intermediates between God and man. They were middlemen. The people of God, they leaned on these leaders to communicate to and from God, to understand God, to know his will, to know his plan, right? And to make sacrifices. If you you were a priest, you made sacrifices that would temporarily atone for the sin of God's people, right? To lead them and to rule them, specifically if you were a king, Because there was a blindness that they had about who God was and even a fear of him because of the state of their sin and the state of his holiness. And we see this play out pretty vividly. I want to turn here quickly. We're not going to spend a ton of time. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. We're going to turn to Exodus 20. should be on the screen. I'm just going to read one verse because it perfectly summarizes this feeling between God's people and God. This is just some context. This is at Sinai when, where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. He's on the mountain. He comes down. And the people actually tell Moses, 
You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Perfect picture of that. But these prophets, these priests, these kings, they were imperfect, right? Even the most successful or righteous mediator still fell short and served only as a shadow of what would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ and his coming. We see this clearly said from God's own mouth um, through Isaiah in Isaiah 43, where he says, God says, your first father sinned, Adam, and your mediators transgressed against me. The people in between, they were imperfect. They didn't cut it. But the hope is that all the way from the garden, there's been a promise. There's been a promise of reconciliation, a promise that a Messiah would come to mend this relationship. It's Christ, the one that would crush the head of the snake. I wish Sybil was in here because we're reading through the biggest story Bible uh, with the girls at night, and they call him the snake crusher. And I'll say, who is the snake crusher? And she goes, Jesus. I'm like, yes, you got it. And uh, she loves it so much. But he would come. He would crush the head of the snake. He would offer himself as a living, worthy, holy sacrifice. And he would represent God to man and man to God as our mediator who closed that chasm that our sin had caused. And I think we, we see this very clearly laid out as his role as mediator in 1 Timothy 2.5. Let me just read it here. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is the primary point that I want to drive home as we look at each of these, is that Jesus is the one and only mediator between God and man, between you and God. It is only Jesus. And he does these through these three offices that we're going to look at as prophet, priest, and king. There's no one else that can stand between you and God. There's none. No one else but Jesus. Your good works, your parents' faith and their good works, your spouse's faith, your pastor, your favorite politician, no one else, most especially ourselves, can be trusted in these roles as prophet, priest, and king. Only Jesus perfectly reveals the will of God. Only he offered the sacrifice that was necessary to fully satisfy the wrath of God. That's what Alex spoke on last week. And only he rules and reigns over all with complete sovereignty. Only God. Jesus is the one and only, and we can trust him, and we can place our hope on him, fully hoping on him. As our mediator, he perfectly combines these three offices. Right? Everything that we saw up to this point, up to Jesus coming, is just a shadow of him fulfilling these offices. And today we're going to look through this on how he specifically, in these offices, builds his church, intercedes on our behalf, and rules and reigns. And if you look at the statement, I see Devin's got it up behind me, as our prophet, it corresponds to an action. So as prophet, he builds. As priest, he intercedes for us. As king, he is reigning forever. So we're going to look at each of these, and we're going to start right at the top with prophet. So I think it's helpful to begin here by looking back across Scripture to see how critical the role of prophet was. 
They functioned almost as like an organ or a channel of revelation. They carried what, uh, what, what is termed, I think, in Ezekiel as oracles of God to his people. They revealed the will and the nature of God. They stood in the counsel of God in a way that his people didn't, and they declared his mind out. The Holy Spirit spoke in and through them. They were crucial. From the major prophets, when you know, we think of uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, to the minor ones like Hosea and Jonah. And in many ways, they were reformers. They were constantly calling the people back, pulling them back to their covenant terms, reminding them, be faithful. Remember the covenant. Be faithful. Turn from your sin. Keep in obedience to the law. You should have never parted, right? Like this is a lot of their messages when we look back at it. And they also offered predictions. And specifically, as we read through the prophets with a Christ-centric view, as we should, it's of the coming king and his kingdom. That, that was the source of encouragement and, and exhortation that they would give. They gave hope in the promise of a coming Messiah and the kingdom that he would usher in. So now we have Jesus. He was both the subject and the object of prophecy. That means that he fulfilled prophecy, but he was also the subject of it, the giving prophecy. He revealed and proclaimed the will of God. He prophesied future events and is in himself the fulfillment of God's promises all through the ages, from the garden up. We can look at so many places across the gospel specifically to see how he revealed the will of God. My mind immediately goes to a very common text. I would say uh, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, right? We see here just really practically and really vividly how he clarifies the moral law, right? He laid out what it looks like to live in righteousness and holiness to his followers, how to pray, how to fast, how to forgive. And then as we go on, we also see where he tells of his coming, where he's he's. He's predicting what's going to happen, both in the near term where he predicts his death. You know, Luke 18, I just preached on that a few weeks ago. And then Matthew 24, another great text where he's telling of the end, end times. He's foretelling what is to come. And countless times, all through scripture, we see the prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in him and his actions. Down to the detail of his coming, where he's going to be born. His life, his perfection, his temptation that he would, he would be tempted with, his suffering, the manner of his death and resurrection fulfilled. Acts 2, great place to go to hear Peter tell everyone that's gathered right after um, Jesus ascends what is going on. He tells them that Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah. Those even around Jesus when he was there. We, we, and we see this in John 6, a little bit before where Alex read earlier, that they thought he was a prophet. Surely he is a prophet. Multiple times we see that throughout the Gospels. He's the one. He's the one. He's the prophet. But he wasn't just any prophet. He was the perfect prophet. The one that was foretold by God in Deuteronomy 18.15. Let me just read that real quick. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So that's all and well. Maybe I've convinced you he is our prophet. But how does his role as prophet, his fulfillment of prophecy, build his church? We still haven't hit on that. Let's look at Ephesians 2. 
We're going to start in verse 19 here. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is Paul speaking to the, the church at Ephesus. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus fulfills the role in the office of prophet, again, being both the subject and object of prophecy. But the ultimate purpose of his role as prophet, his, his revealing of the Father's will, his call to repentance, him telling what is going to come in the future, it's to build his church. That's his purpose, to create and sustain and rescue a people that need to hear again and again and believe and repent, a people that need to understand and walk in obedience to what he has revealed of the will of God, and most importantly, to understand the centrality of Christ as the mediator, as the means of God's glorious plan of redemption. Christ is the foundation of the church. He's the foundation of our lives as believers or members of the church. We say this really often, and I think we can say it really flippantly. Yeah, he's, he's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. We have songs about this, right? But stop and just think about this for a second. The church as an institution doesn't exist outside of Christ. It doesn't. He's the bedrock. He's the head. He's the leader. He is what we build our lives on, our community, our mission upon. There is no church without Christ revealing the will of the Father. The message that we are saved by, the message that we carry, that we carry to India, is Christ. That's the message. That Christ came incarnate in the flesh. We celebrate this at Christmas time, right? Fully God, fully man, died on our behalf, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, confirmed by so many prophecies told hundreds of years before, all that, all of that, so that his people, his elect, both Jews and Gentile, might be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, of the truth. Actually says it right before our primary text in 1 Timothy, that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. The truth of what? The truth that he is God. The truth that Jesus was sent and has come and has made peace between mankind and God as our mediator. And this is what we base our lives upon. The prophetic voice of Jesus that calls us to repentance as he reveals who God is. As he tells us what is to come and implores us to order our lives in accordance to his will and to tell others, making disciples is the foundation of the church. So do we believe that? When we, when we look at Jesus in our, our mind's eye, do we see him as prophet? Do we trust that his words were the perfectly revealed will of the triune God? And, and I mean really trust. Like I'm not just saying like, yeah, I believe the word is in there. A lot of us believe that. I hope all of us here believe that. But do we base our lives on it and do our lives reflect that? 
Do we walk in obedience to his commands without reservation and delay? This isn't just dieting advice where you can take it or leave it. Like, yeah, I know sugar's bad. I, I really shouldn't, you know, have that extra cookie, but haha, I'm gonna. No, it's not. It's not that. This is the revealed will of God. This is the ultimate truth about who we are, about humanity, about who God is and how we should live in accordance with it. And if we believe that, if we believe that he, Jesus, is the, third, the second person of the Trinity, that he is God, our lives will look very different. So have we built our lives on this truth? Do we realize that we have no other mediator, no one else to step in between our sin and a holy God? No one else in the entire universe to save us. Do we look also at the church the way that Christ does? And certainly not to any perfect degree are we going to do that. But do we see it and prioritize it in our lives as the thing that Christ himself is the foundation of, that he came and died for? Do we see it as the outpost in a world that so desperately needs a light, that light of truth revealed to them? Do we participate in the call and the prophetic mission of the church explicitly commissioned by Christ in Matthew 28? Go and make disciples. Do we do that? He came as our prophet to reveal the will and nature of God to us to call us to repentance, and to build a church of people that follow him in grateful obedience. And that should mean something to us. should change our lives. So let's move on here. We're going to consider him as our perfect priest interceding for us. And to do this, I know of no better book to turn to than the book of Hebrews. I feel like you could summarize that book as Jesus priest forever and you'd be, you'd be there. Let's look at Hebrews 2, and we're also going to uh, look at Hebrews 7 in, in a second as well. We're going to start in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 17, just a few verses. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When we think back through the Old Testament priests, right, we think, we think Aaron and, you know, the tribe of Levi that were specifically blessed with priestly duties. The priests functioned to offer sacrifices and to intercede or, or petition God on behalf of the people of Israel. The sacrifice would be made of, of uh, you know, doves or goats or lambs would be of atonement or a covering of the people's sin made in an attempt to restore the brokenness between God and man. Atonement literally means at one meant. That's what it means. But these priests, these mediators, they fail to be able to make a lasting reconciliation. They're unable to make lasting atonement. This is where we flip to chapter seven. We're going to start in verse 23. See the author of Hebrews here. He goes on to say, the former priests 
or many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They were mortal. And he holds his priesthood permanently. He was not, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So in these two sections of Hebrews, Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 7 that we just read, we see that the author of Hebrews very succinctly states how Jesus, at the, incarn- the incarnate Son of God, coming down to earth in the flesh, is our faithful and high priest. But he does this because he put on flesh and is able to represent man to God in a way that former priests couldn't. He can even sympathize or empathize with us because he suffered and he was tempted. He was able to come before God on behalf of man and offer the ultimate sacrifice, right? Once and for all sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. Something that all of the former priests could not do. That's what it means when we see in chapter 2 that he made propitiation for our sins. And now we can, we can draw near to God through his atoning work because he is interceding for us. He is petitioning God on our behalf. Do you see how he's mediating here? I think it's worthwhile to, to pause for just a section and a moment here and connect two words. I'm using atonement and then we, we saw propitiation, right? So throughout the Old Testament, we see the work of priests involved atonement, offering sacrifices, right? At, at one minute, we just talked through that. This specific word, atonement, is used pretty consistently if you go back through the Old Testament, covering sins, appeasing the holy wrath of God. And then we get to the New Testament, and we don't see the word at all. But we see the concept of this word in the New Testament in several other words that I believe are more descriptive of what the work of Christ has done for us. We see blood, lamb, sacrifice, which refers to our sin and guilt being paid with the ultimate sacrifice and receiving everlasting forgiveness. We see the word reconciliation, which speaks to us being alienated from God and how he brought us back into fellowship. We see the word propitiation, right? Hebrews 2, we just read it here. Being under God's holy wrath, but that wrath is now satisfied. We see redemption or ransom, which is more of like a marketplace term for us being enslaved and now set free. We see justification, where we were condemned, a legal term, and we are now pardoned and counted as righteous. We see victory, deliverance, rescue, where we face the dread of our enemies, but now delivered and triumphant in Christ. This was really helpful for me to work through, and I think it's helpful for us. Because when we see these words in the New Testament, we can sometimes make them something distinct. And they are distinct in many ways, but they're ultimately speaking to the work and the sacrifice of Christ by which he mediates between God and man as our perfect priest. But we're not just speaking of Christ mediating in the past on the cross, like his work on the cross, but also in his current work as our intercessor at the Father's right hand. He is in the throne room. He is before the Father, petitioning on our behalf. We have many texts that tell us this. Romans 8, 
Jesus is at the right hand of God and also interceding. 1 John 2, 1, we read, Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Hebrews 7, we just read, he always lives to intercede for us. He now helps us in a very unique way. He intercedes for us, but on the basis of his atoning work. His intercession is pleading for us before the Father that his work is sufficient on our account. It's not disconnected from atonement. These are two separate tasks. His atonement is involved in the intercession. And because of his atoning work, all the benefits flow to us. We see this really well in John 17. Uh, You can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to read pieces of it because it's pretty much the whole chapter. But in verse 4, this is a priestly prayer. It's called the high priest prayer, I think, in the ESV at the top. And it is him praying to the Father after his resurrection. And he says, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then when you skip down to verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Do you see the basis of his prayer for us here? It's his work. That's the basis for his request to the Father. Isn't that relieving to you? Isn't that encouraging? That Jesus as priest forever... Perfect, eternal fulfillment of the role, right? Interceding on your behalf, on our behalf, on behalf of God's people, atoning once and for all, he made a way to restore our relationship with God forever through his sacrifice on Calvary. It was the ultimate, the worthy, only sacrifice that could do this. And he continues these priestly duties by interceding for us as our advocate before the Father. Do you see Jesus this way? As your advocate, do we realize that we can boldly approach God in prayer, boldly approach him in prayer because of his work? When Jesus is before the Father, interceding for us based on his works, not ours, that is so relieving. It's not dependent on how good your week was. I mean, we can sink into that mentality of like, I'm not even going to pray today because I screwed up or I got in this fight or where you feel like there is this distance between you and God. There doesn't need to be because he doesn't treat you because of your sin. He treats you because of Christ's righteousness. And we can trust that sacrifice. We can trust the sacrifice that he made for our sin. Our debt is paid. We can live a life of repentance knowing that our performance is not necessary. Our belief and faith in him is as the only suitable sacrifice is what is necessary on our behalf. In times of weakness and struggling and trials, suffering, we can look to this God-man Jesus who experienced temptations and suffering and weakness and, and trials, and we can sympath- he can sympathize with us. He reacts to our struggles with sympathy, with mercy, care, and love. I think someone needs to hear that this morning. That is his reaction to your struggles. There's a a book a lot of us have read, Gentle and Lowly by Dan Ortland, And I think it's chapter three, I want to say, where he says, because Christ is the head and we're the body, when a member of his body is hurting, he doesn't hack off his arm. He cares for it. He treats it. 
When we are struggling, he is treating and caring you. He's not cutting you off. Now, I needed to hear that. He is our mediating priest. And we can pray to him, knowing that our petitions are brought into the throne room of God as he intercedes for us by Christ. And he has the ear of the Father. He receives what he asks for on our behalf. Might not be what we ask for, but he receives what he asks for on our behalf. It's beautiful. Now let's turn our attention to Jesus as our reigning king. We're going to ground ourselves here in Ephesians 1.20. We read this. We'll go through 23 here. He raised him, that's Christ, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in, hev- in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. After Jesus died and was resurrected, he's at the right hand of the Father. He's reigning from that position of unlimited authority over all earthly and supernatural powers now and forever. What does this look like? Like how can we think of this or relate to this? Well, if we look back and we think of presidents or go back to the Old Testament and we think of kings and judges of Israel, we think of men that reigned and ruled his people, God's people, instructing them, judging, protecting, and defending them, going to war to protect them. We think of a leader. We think Old Testament, you probably, my brain immediately goes to Saul, it goes to David, Men that God had anointed for the position and used, again, as a mediator between God and man, but with more of an emphasis on ruling his people, reigning. And when we think of these men, again, maybe it's just me, but I immediately think of their moral failures. I think of Saul, and you're like, wow, that dude was hunting down David. It seems like he had bigger fish to fry. When you think about David, I think about him sending someone to death in battle so he could take his wife. They were men. They were sinful. They were imperfect. And this is really important. They were not sovereign. They all eventually failed. They failed morally, but they also failed in the area to protect and to reign over their kingdoms. This is because they weren't sovereign. As much as these kings throughout the ages thought that they were the supreme authority, they were just a shadow of the king to come. I think this relationship is really clear in Psalm 2. I'm going to read just a few verses here. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bond apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This king set in Zion, his anointed, it's Christ. That's his king, the supreme authority. But his kingdom, it wasn't a political kingship. It was something far greater And this is much of what Israel wanted, was that political kingship, political power. 
And if we're honest, a lot of pieces of evangelicalism wants that as well. But Jesus has this discourse with with Pilate right before his crucifixion that clearly lays this out. It's beautiful. I'm going to turn to, let's turn to John 18, 36. Jesus answered uh, the question of Pilate right before this, which is, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews, as they say? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That last line is very important. It says, for this purpose, I have come. This is why he was born why we celebrate Christ at Christmas, because he bears witness to the truth. He came to bear witness to the fact that he was the anointed king. He is the anointed king. He is the sovereign king of the universe whose kingdom is infinitely greater than any massive Roman emperor or kingship or any earthly kingdom that has existed since or will exist after. He has been given all authority And all should bow down to him and him alone. Hebrews 1, it tells us that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the entire universe. Very clearly stating him as king. He stands between God and man as this perfect and true king, and he rules over all things. He's head of the church. He's a fair judge. He judges justly and with all authority to do so. All things are under him and in subjection to him. Things on earth, spiritual and heavenly things. And he is the sovereign, the sovereign. We've watched the crown kind of on and off over the last couple of years. And it like always kind of bothers me when they refer to the queen as the sovereign. I hate it. Because he is the sovereign. He is the sovereign from the foundations of the world. Nothing is out of his control. He was born so that truth might be revealed to you and to me and to the world looking on. And again, if we are in Christ, our lives should reflect this truth. So what are some good questions to ask yourself? Is your life, your family, your career, is it subject to Christ the King? Is his word the final word in your life? Or are you looking to be led by someone else? Maybe it's a a friend or a favorite political party or a YouTube star. Who has the final word that changes the course of your life? Does his word revealed in the scripture by the spirit, does it lead and instruct you? Does it lead and instruct your home? Or do you do whatever feels best? Are you led by your own heart or is your heart instructed by the king of kings? As our conquering king, as our conquering king, we should carry joy into life and a confidence into life, knowing that he has the ultimate victory. We can trust that nothing is out of his control or his plan, even the instruction of our hearts. 
2 Corinthians 3, it says that he leads us in a victory procession as our conquering king in general. I shared this at a, at a men's night a few weeks back. But I just, I picture in my mind just Jesus on top of a tank, rolling with an army behind him, going down the streets of New York City. I don't know why. But when I think of victory procession, I think post-World War II is where my brain goes. And you just see that this is what we are experiencing now. This is the Christian life. We are being led behind a conquering general that has the victory. When times are hard and we're relying on our own strength and power for kingship, we have to turn to him. I'm so guilty of this. And uh, I was reflecting on this recently. It was probably three weeks ago. I was down at the edge of this boat slip in our community um, on Lanier with the girls, and they're throwing sticks and rocks into the water and surprisingly not drowning. It was great. And I was there looking out at the water, just super peaceful spot of the lake, and reflecting on Hebrews 1, uh, we had just gone through this as an LTG in our, in our group, the, the men's group, and we were talking about just him as king in our lives. And I'm, I was just thinking through that, and just in a moment, in a moment, the Spirit just convicted me. I mean, convicted my heart. And there was this just astounding realization I had had in this moment that so much of my life is me trying to rule and reign right now. And I just had this, this heavy heart immediately because even though I had good intentions and maybe just subconsciously, uh, you know, kind of put myself in this position, I had taken the weight of all of our situations in life just onto my back. And it's hopeless. It is hopeless. We might be able to carry that for a moment, but it is ultimately hopeless. And the weird thing was about this is that I realized that it was, it was based on pride. You know, you think of like going through hard times in life and just struggling to like, you know, keep two kids from killing each other or my wife or me, you know, or like, you know, trying to maintain a job and family and being a pastor and all the things, right? You, you think that those things are honorable and good, and they are. They are all honorable and good, and striving to do those excellently is good. But the weight doesn't belong on us. And it is pride for me to think that it's me that accomplishes something successful. And I've had, through the course of my life, moments where the Lord has brought me down to nothing in those moments where I think I'm the hero. I, I have... I'm an Enneagram one, or people say that I'm an Enneagram one. One of the things about them is they, they have a hero mentality. They like to save the day, not typically based on their whatever actions. But it was helpful for me. I'm not very introspective. And it revealed to me that I often do this. I step in not necessarily for the glory of a situation, but because I think I can do it. I, I think I can be the one to solve and have success. And I remember the first time it hit me, I'm a product manager at work. I meet with clients. I kind of manage projects and relationships with clients. And I was on a winning streak. I mean, I'm just like client after client. I'm like killing the game here. And I roll into this one, not even realizing I was super cocky. And that thing was a disaster. 
and it fell all on me. I mean, it just collapsed and I got called into a meeting with my boss and my boss's boss and the owner and I'm sitting there and like the clients chewing us out. It was terrible. Danielle can tell you my stomach is like inside out. It was just driving there. I'm like just praying like what is happening? And the Lord used that moment specifically for me and my work to realize any remote success I have in any area of my life is because of his blessing, his kingship, his rule, his reign, his plan. Yeah. Not me. Yeah. We have to relieve ourselves of that weight, but we also have to confess our pride in that. Great. Church, we have to submit to him as king. Do we? Do we submit all things to him? Because there is such relief and hope and joy to be found in this, and we must approach him as king daily, daily. We're unable to carry this role. I'm going to call the band back up here, and I'm going to close with the last two lines of the, the statement. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. This is our response to all of this, to all of the knowledge of Jesus as fully God and fully man and everything else that we have walked through for the last four or five weeks going through this series, we praise him. We praise him. He is Lord. He is eternally Lord. And we as his people, we will praise his glorious name for all of eternity with him in Zion. If our knowledge of the Lord does not result in praise and glory to his name, and I'm not just talking about in our speech or, or singing on Sunday, but in real action in our lives, then it was fruitless. Just let that sink in for a moment. We proudly can repeat truths of this creed or of scripture, and we can sing all of the Christmas carols that speak of him coming, him as king, how he's born on Christmas Day, bringing peace to men. But if our lives do not reflect the truths of submitting to him as our one and only hope, as the one and only mediator between us and God, as our prophet, as our priest, as our king, we may not know him. In Luke 2, when we see the angels are speaking to the shepherds the night that Christ was born, they say these famous lines that we've heard in a million songs, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We leave off that last part very conveniently, among those with whom he is pleased. Is your life a life that is being lived as a, a sacrifice to him, that is pleasing to him? Do you have Jesus as your mediator? Because if you do not, it is not pleasing to God. Only the work of Jesus can gain you a pleasing position before the Father where you experience the peace of the gospel, the peace that he ushers in. He is the one that can close that chasm between your sin, that your sin has created between you and God, and he is the one and only one that can restore and mend the broken relationship between God and man. You must believe on him. He's our only hope. And we must praise his name forever because he's the only name that's worthy to be praised. I'm going to pray for us here and then we'll uh, turn to the Lord's Supper. 
God, we love you so much. Lord, we pray that as we go throughout our weeks, the truths of who you are and how you act and care for us as our prophet, priest, and king would have real life change in our hearts, in our lives, in our families. God, would you bring the reality of who you are as the anointed king into our lives and would our lives be subject to you and you alone. In your name, amen.